everybody. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Unexpected Points, another interview. And after two highly informative, uh, stellar insight interviews that we've had over the last couple of weeks, I decided, you know what, let's take a week off. Okay, <laughs> let's just let's just get into some some takes. And the, the theme of this episode is going to be blasphemous NFL takes, takes that will get you canceled. And when I thought to myself, who who doesn't care? Who is willing to stand against the tide? Who will say what's on his mind no matter what the NFL media establishment and football guys have to say? Who may thrive on it, actually. That person is none other than 538's Josh Herbsmeyer. Josh, thank you for joining me. Wow, what an intro. And uh, yeah, being iconoclast and you describing me, the, the the contrarian of all contrarians, as far as I'm concerned, describing me as an iconoclast sounds uh, sounds pretty good. So thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I may uh, bend the knee to the football establishment a little bit more often than than you do. But, you know, we're, 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 this, this is a safe space here for for not having to worry about anyone on the outside. Um a cancellation via podcast probably happens a little bit less often than, than than on the Twitter streets. So, but before we get into this, and we're gonna have five blasphemous takes for each of us. We haven't heard each other's takes other than one take I did give it as an example. So Josh has heard my first my first take. But uh, before we get to that, I wanted to ask you something more on a personal level. Here, we like to get to know our guests a little bit here, a little bit more. I know you've been on the podcast before, but what I noticed recently is you we're we're, we're former podcasting partners. That is true. We are former podcasting partners, but even then. Back in the uh, in the olden in the olden days, I'm not sure we got a little bit too much into, onto the inside. So what I'll say is what I've noticed about you from from afar and and in close is that you're a man of um, you're a man of fine tastes. I will say we we saw you uh, posting recently about a pizza that you were cooking. We've seen the culinary exploits. We've seen the uh, whether it be craft beers or wine, the finer things there, a very well-manicured home, as you can see in the background, well-coiffed, beautiful children and wife. Everything is good there. So I have to say is, how did you cultivate this this real like snob lifestyle that you have going over there? And for an amateur snob, like I want to be a snob, but I'm too lazy. Where would you start on that, on that path here? And I don't use it as a pejorative because it's something that I aspire to, quite honestly. I mean, I would I would embrace snob if, if that was actually the, the the kind of ethos I was I was espousing because I really think like eat what you like, drink what you like, and and so what drives all my hobbies and, and my desire to be uh, interested in in pizza and beer and all the rest is passion. So if you have passion in something, you naturally want to understand it, and uh, and then you get deep into it, and uh, just like uh, we do with football analytics. So that that's kind of the the reason why I am that way. But uh, how do you get started, man? I mean. The great thing about beer is anyone can make it. So if you enjoy a uh, frosty brew, uh, you can just get yourself a carboy and some yeast and uh, some grain and, and or, or even a kit and go to town. And, and you'll be amazed at the quality you can make in your garage uh, when it comes to pizza. I mean, it's flour and water, yeast and salt. That's it. A little bit of cheese and toppings. You're good to go. So, like, you know, the, the interesting part is these deceptively simple undertakings can be rich and deep and you can go down a rabbit hole for your entire life trying to perfect those things. And I guess that's why I'm drawn to them. Yes. Yes. So I'm sorry. sorry. I may, I miss qualifying as a snob. It's more uh, a quest to find meaning in life. How about that? Does that, does that, does that sound like it for you? Or, or, or at least take my mind off things. I don't know. It's been a pretty rough, pretty rough stretch of years here for everyone. So. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Getting, getting older will do that. So it's good to have midlife crises. Crises can come 
can come quite early also. So that's good. That's also something to, to invest in heavily. Okay. So on the personal side, everyone out there, go ahead, get your yeast on, get your, uh, get, get, get your pizza making on. I'm still not going to do it because I'm too lazy. I'm just going to go buy it at the store, but I like it in theory and I, and I respect it. All right. So let's get into the blasphemous takes here. I will go first. Again, we have five each. And there are a couple of like topical things going on in the NFL, some Deshaun Watson stuff going on as it's, you know, the drip, drip, drip on Deshaun Watson there. And I talked about a little bit earlier this week, but we'll get into that because I think Josh has a Browns take that we can get into that. Aaron Donald contract. I have a take on that, but I have an Aaron Donald blasphemous take that we'll also get into a little bit later where we can talk about that too. So let's get right into the take. So the first one that I'm going to mention is one that I told to Josh before the podcast here. So he's not going to be surprised by this one. Something I've talked about a little bit before, but I want to frame it in a little bit stronger uh, way here. And that my take is going to be head coaches should not be involved at all in fourth down decision-making. So that's, that's the take. And the reason being that I think there is a lot of evidence, not only within the NFL, but when there have been studies on human adjustments and interventions to well-calibrated models outside of the NFL, whenever that happens, normally the bias that the human will introduce into it, whether it's being too conservative, being too aggressive, however it may fall out, ends up being a net negative overall to the output that you're going to get from the decision-making rather than just following what you're, what you're doing. And I think one piece of evidence that... Uh, ben Baldwin has provided as part of his fourth down model, which really lays it out starkly. And you can see this on stuff that he's published on Twitter. I'll, I'll describe it a little bit here. Is, but basically, he plotted out how often teams go for it based upon what his model is, is saying teams should do. So the, the theory behind coaches being a value add to these fourth down decisions is they can incorporate information that is not part of the model. And when you look at his information, when the model has a 2% win probability loss or even a worse outcome, according to the worst expectation, according to his model, teams never go for it. Basically it's between zero and 3% of the time that teams are ending up going for it. So they are strictly, strictly adhering to what the model would be telling them. Whereas on the flip side of things, if it's over 1% gain, over 2% gain, and so on, it only starts off with teams going for it maybe 30 40% of the time. So again, the equivalent would be them going for it 98% of the time in these circumstances. And then it slowly builds up to when you're getting an obvious, obvious situation where it's a 10% win probability gain in one decision, teams are doing that almost 100% of the time. So what it's showing here is that even if coaches are incorporating information, they're not doing it in a balanced way. It's an asymmetric way where the value loss on incorporating that information seems to be pretty high in the in in their decision not to go for it and they really aren't getting gaining any value on the information that they could be adding that would say that their team has a better chance of getting it than you would expect that is just rarely rarely coming through so i think that whole framework is how i look at this to say you know what let's just take coaches completely out of this 
the decision. We don't have head coaches calling all the plays on offense and defense. We don't have head coaches making all these other things where they're not really the experts on that. Let's just go ahead, forget about tradition, forget about everything else is. Let's find the best person to make this decision who can be detached from some of the emotion of the leadership and decision-making of the head coach. Allow them, empower them to make these few decisions that we see during the year, and you're going to have a net benefit for your team. Your thoughts, Mr. Hermsmeyer. Well, I don't think you would expect me to disagree with that. And I think that uh, what you were what you were citing, the research you cited at the start was from Cade Massey, I believe, and it was algorithm version. Yes. And uh, just a seminal piece of work. I, I remember uh, before I knew Cade, uh, was one of the first things I, I read from him, uh, besides Lizard's personal things he's famous with. But uh, the, the, it was relatively new at the time, and it was it was shocking. I think it was his follow-up study where he said the only way to make it work is to allow them to turn the, the knobs and and within a small bound, right? So you can allow them to mess with it so that they will believe in it, but you can't allow them to mess with it too much as they'll actually destroy the value. So it's really interesting, and I and I completely agree. I have a take on fourth downs as well. So I guess I'll just roll right into it because it kind of overlaps with okay, what you're saying. Okay, let's do it. Just do it. You can roll into it, and then we can talk about yeah, the different talk aspects about of my together. take and your take. Yeah. Okay, let's so, do it. I don't think there's such a thing as being too aggressive on fourth down. So I think when we look at these models like the one you were discussing from Ben Baldwin and others, Sometimes you'll see the nerds online kind of debating whether or not you should or shouldn't go. Well, I think it's directionally always correct to be aggressive for a lot of the reasons you've already stated. And most coaches are naturally conservative. So teams should, I think, just lean into it. And so when we argue about these interest instances in the margin of error, I just think that we're where it's maybe incorrect to go for it. I think it's counterproductive in the large, in the large picture. Um, so you just assume you're going for it every time, unless there's a, a very good reason not to. And maybe that's where coaches can put some of that information that is not captured in the model into decisions to actually say, no, we're going to buck the auto go for it trend and say no this one time. But because those reasons do exist. But, but I think you need to establish the fourth down culture, even if a couple decisions here and there might be strictly negative EV. And, and like for one instance, I think my understanding is that in L.A., um, Chargers head coach Brandon Staley, he doesn't consult a game strategy guy uh, during the game. He, he just goes for it on vibes every time, almost, right? And that's perfectly fine with me. Like, he can dial things in later or never, or, you know, maybe he just stays the way he is. It's a better, more exciting brand of football, even if they never get it exactly right. In LA. No, I, I like that. Yeah, so Staley in particular, he had a couple of decisions this past season I want to say against the Chiefs, where they ended up winning that game, there was a fourth and nine, maybe near the end of the game that they ended up going forward and drawing a pass interference call and then scoring eventually and putting through there. That would have been borderline at best, according according to model. So what here's I'll add maybe to your take this is something that popped into my head there is that even if, according to a model, it is negative EV to go for it in a particular situation. If you establish what you're talking about, this mindset, if we're always going to go for it on fourth down, it takes out any kind of friction and decision points and having to shift in and out of mentality when you're talking about from the play caller's perspective, where they just know that you're going to go for it on fourth down. So it's not like, hey, we're thinking about maybe if we get within X number of yards, you could think about treating this third down like this. Like you, you take that out of the equation automatically. You take out any sort of delay that happens there. You take everything else and you just go for it immediately in those 
circumstances that the play caller can then open up, uh, really open up and become a fruitful way of looking at the entire set of downs rather than having to think about it as these distinct decisions, will we or won't we, as the drive is playing out. Yeah, agree, agree completely, because that's one of the major benefits of having that communication open and quick is that your play caller can know, hey, it's two to get it. You know, you know, going into third down, it's two to get it. And, and so you can call that third down play with a with a view towards the fourth down play. And and, and there's a lot more, uh, there's some optimization in, in play calling that can be had there. So I agree. I think that uh, we're a long way from, from getting to that place in the NFL. And, and that's in large part due to how head coaches view their role once they finally get that role. They're no longer, many of them, the CEO types, are no longer micromanaging the offense. They're no longer controlling the defensive play calls. Um, they're allowing their people underneath them to do that. And so it's almost like, well, what am I doing then? Am I just head cheerleader? You know, there has to be some decisions I get to make. I think that has to do, that has something to do with their aversion to giving up that responsibility. But uh, I agree with you. I think we should, uh, we should hopefully see more of that in the future. I think as we get more analytics inclined GMs. Now, of course, like I mentioned, the last couple of uh, guests that I had have told us how uninteresting the whole fourth down discussion is. So we got to start with that, obviously. Yeah. We, we, we'll, we'll, lean, we'll lean straight in, into that one. All right. So I'll go with my second take here. This is a little bit like more of a first take-ish sort of, sort of take rather than a football analytics guy thing. I'll, I'll come back to some of those later. But Okay, my my second take, and let's see whether the markets kind of come to me a little bit on on this discussion, is that I'm going to say Kyle Shanahan is not a top 10 NFL head coach. Like, I would not pick him if I had to pick an NFL head coach. He would not be in the top 10 names that I would want. And why? Well, why, why is that the case? Well, I feel like coaching is extremely difficult to to judge. We hear a lot of things about the brilliance of certain coaches, guys like like Shanahan versus others, how they can affect things, how players love these certain things. But again, a lot of these takes that we have for what they're doing, we don't really have a great gauge on how to value those things, how they are reflected on the on the field. We have a much better way of gauging teams, you know, if they're going for and fourth down or not, maybe their pass run ratios, how they're doing things in free agency and the draft and how they're affecting the front office. And I would say on all of those things that we can measure pretty well, he's just bad. You know, he's borderline awful when it comes to the front office and his effect of what's going on there. I mean, I don't need to get a, like a laundry list of things here, but there have been various signings. There have been taking guys off of the board, putting them back on the board. There have been trading up for guys who never end up getting used. And then even this last draft, we saw this fiasco where I'm not really sure they actually wanted Trey Lance or not. And even when they talked about the reason for trading these draft picks and then moving up, it sounded like it was more of an injury concern when it came to someone like Jimmy Garoppolo than necessarily needing to upgrade the play. Although a lot of people have said that Shanahan realized that. I, I don't know if he really did. And I think there's, you know, who knows what would end up happening if, if they had those, those picks now. But I think even the on-field results, I would push back a little bit about whether you have that much evidence that he has, he has affected things pretty well. I mean, I think one of the first things that I've heard about a few times, and I heard an interview with Mitchell Schwartz the other day, who used to be on the Browns back then. Shanahan was the offensive coordinator for the Browns in 2014 before moving to the Falcons the next year. And he was talking about how, you know, the offense was finally functional. Brian Hoyer was playing well, and Hoyer's not a great quarterback, obviously, and everything else. And then I went back and I started to look at things 
I mean, out of 30, 30 qualifying quarterbacks, Brian Hoyer was second, a third to last in his efficiency that season. The offense was bottom 10, 24th in offensive efficiency that season, but they were 12th in defense, a big jump for the Browns, and they went seven and nine that season. So again, I, I kind of dispute that a little bit. Going to 2015, now everyone remembers the 2016 Matt Ryan, Hall of Fame quarterback, one of the greatest seasons that 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 the greatest season he's had of his career. Well, 2015, Shanahan's first year there was Ryan's worst year of his career in his efficiency, uh, bottom ten offense for the Falcons. And then you know the next year Ryan had this huge spike in efficiency. Julio Jones went ham. They had the number one offensive line according to PFF grades and run blocking top eight-ish in pass blocking. So yeah, when everything fell into place, they had that one season at the top of the efficiency and then they moved forward. And then again, you know, kind of going forward to what's happened with with uh, the 49ers, he hasn't been successful except for in 20, you know, we've had Garoppolo there in 2019 and 2021. But even then, the last three seasons, the 49ers have had a top 10-ish sort of defense in their defensive efficiency and their offensive efficiency has plummeted as being bottom 10 when Garoppolo hasn't been there and then jump back up when Jimmy G has been there. So I guess I just incorporate all of these different things. I'm not comfortable saying that he gives you such a certainty of offensive efficiency as a play caller that I can look past the other clear negatives that I see for Shanahan. So he's not going to be a guy that I would lean into if I were building a team. Agree, disagree, too hot, not hot enough. Uh, I would say Shanahan is a guy that's probably one of those one of those gentlemen who's probably better suited to just be an offensive coordinator. And I think if he had yes. stayed in that role and he could get paid like a head coach, everyone would win. Like the organization would win. He would get to do what's best for him. Um, yeah, obviously every, everybody who has a little bit of an ego and thinks they can do it as well as the next guy wants to have a, a say and wants to have the, uh, their voice heard and they want to be part of the decision-making process, if not control it. And he certainly has that in San Francisco. And so I guess to, to the extent that there's a lot of luck driving draft decisions and, and, and an injury and that kind of thing, which he's had his share of bad injury luck, whether it's at the beginning of last season with. Mostert, which we, we kind of poo-poo this because he did such a good job with Debo, but I do think he's a guy who needs a, a fast running back and get to the edge. Like he's just, that's the, that's the prototypical guy he needs in that system to really make everything go because he is a run first offensive coach. And so uh, I think he lost a lot last season and still did well. He still did pretty good. And, uh, and I think he can scheme really, really well. So I, I would say he belongs in the NFL Probably not as a head coach, but good luck ever getting him back uh, happy and being a, a, a robust caller of plays alone, you know, and not a guy who demands some kind of seat at the table for decision making, which I kind of agree with you. He's pretty bad at Trey Sermon. Uh, I think my, my colleague at Establish the Run, Evan Silva, was saying he looked like he was carrying a piano on his back. Uh, last year, yeah, I mean, he was saying he might get he might get cut again. You're saying that he needs a fast guy, like that. Like that's not right. That's not the guy. That's no, not the guy. He traded up for him, right? Yeah, that's not the guy. And 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 he did the same thing. Pounded the table for a third round guy a couple years back. And uh, I'm blanking on the name because he's been so terrible and never really had any run. Um, I think this was his first year. 
Uh, and he pounded. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. We had Joe Joe Williams, Joe Williams in a very it. long time. In the four, I, I'm sure it was a third or fourth round, but yeah, the guy basically never played. That was the guy that he took off of the board. They went into the draft saying this guy's off of our board, and he's like, you know what? <laughs> let's bring him back onto the board and let's trade up for for him. Just not n- not great, not great. Right, right. So I agree with that. Well, let, let me let me roll into another take, and this one is kind of uh, 49ers adjacent, so it makes sense. But okay, I think given the current rules and state of play, the entire ideology. Behind the coverage of linebackers, you know, coverage linebackers, middle off-ball linebackers who, who cover. I think it's flawed and it should just be fired into the sun. I mean, paying them top of market, drafting them high, all of it is a bad use of resources. It's poor team building. and You cannot rely on them even – I mean, you can't even rely on a top-tier defensive back year over year. Like, you can't you can't say, we're definitely going to get X out of this guy in coverage. It's, it's just so multifaceted. And, and it's even more the case that you can't rely on coverage from the linebacking position, at least in the aggregate. And so whatever it is you saw on tape, right, that put the thrill up your leg this year is likely not going to be there next year. I mean, you, you can cut up as much as you want this year and show show me all these great plays where he's roboting his ass off. But the point is, is the next year you're probably not going to get that same result. And so I think if you want to coverage a guy like that that can help in the run game and, and muscle up to a tight end, you get a cheap guy. Like, you, you know, uh, just picking a guy out of the air, like Tariq Carpenter. So the Packers, they drafted him in the seventh round this year. He played safety at Georgia Tech. He's like 6'4", 225. And he'll probably slide into the middle as an off-ball linebacker if he pans out. But, you know, he's the seventh-round pick, so he probably won't. But if he does, and you insist on getting a big guy who can fill and stop the run and cover a little, I think that's the direction to go. And he's that's the type of price you should Okay, well, first, I, I'm glad that you you already went into this because I was going to make a joke before we started that all five of your takes can't be that Fred Warner is overrated and and, uh, <laughs> and, and should and shouldn't be paid and should be uh, left destitute on the side of the road somewhere as as people believe seem, seem to believe that you think. Um, so l- l- let me let me tell you is is this a Fred Warner take? Is this is this the Fred Warner debate coming out here basically? I mean, there's definitely some Fred Warner in this. I mean, uh, I, 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 I remember when the Niners announced the signing last year. I mean, they had such a good deal uh, getting him in the third round. And there's people I respect inside the NFL who had him much higher ranked. They couldn't believe he'd fallen all that way. And, and I, think, I think they got lucky and they got a good pick. And, they, and then they screwed it all up. And they screwed it all up by overpaying. And, like, I think you may not be able to find Warner again in the third round right? Year over year over year. But those are the shots you should be taking and you shouldn't be fouling it all up by paying top of market as soon as the guy hits year four, year five. Yeah. How much do we now, what, what, it's going to be an interesting test case. And of course you never want to overplay any particular test case, unless it backs up your take, then of course, go, go all in, go all in on it. Um, is going to be, yeah, Bobby Wagner now coming to the Rams is an interesting one because again, he's in one of these guys, huge contract didn't really pay off. I would say for Seattle on the, on the big contract that he negotiated there. He's another kind of, of coverage sort of guy. I'm trying to think of other names there. Corey Littleton is probably a name. I remember people being kind of excited about the fact that he was leaving the Rams after a great coverage season and signed to a three year, $36 million contract with the Raiders in 2020. He basically flamed out. It wasn't, wasn't very good to not pay off there. So you're saying this is more of a universal sort of thing and would you say it's accentuated by when these guys are changing from one team to another? 
I would absolutely say that if you're talking about the uncertainty surrounding their performance and coverage, absolutely. I mean, it's so much, again, to do with the schemes that are called, with their comfort in those schemes, and then also, you know, the, the particular techniques they're asked to do. And, and I think, like, well, who's another guy? Was it Devin Smith on the Falcons? Wasn't he a sideline mm-hmm. to sideline guy? People thought he could cover the hook and, and, the, and the quick outs and stuff like that. And he was just going to be this amazing guy. And now this last year, I mean, it, it, I, did they, they're talking about cutting him out. I haven't, I, haven't, I haven't kept up on Devin Smith, but I know he had a terrible year last year. And, and, and now there's talk of uh, Atlanta letting him go or trading him. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I think there was a, there's a couple, I mean, well, one of the guys that they were hoping was going to be a coverage guy was when, um, was when the, the Steelers, the Steelers traded up. And then, so they, they've had this thing too, where he wasn't like an established covers cover guy. Um, but when the Steelers traded up for, uh, Devin Bush, I think it was, uh, that, that they traded up for into the, into the top 10. So he kind of flamed out there. And I think you're right for the, for the Falcons, they were concerned with, I'm trying to think of what the exact thing was. They were concerned and they didn't want to trade and, and back out of everything with Matt Ryan last year because of the fact that they wanted to make sure that they could retain Deion Jones as their linebacker, I think it was. So, Deion yeah, Jones. he's another guy that, like, he's another guy that peaked one year, and then they've been trying to, like, recapture that since. Yeah, Deion Jones is the linebacker I met. The first-round pick in, for Atlanta, uh, sideline. Yeah. Guy. yeah. So they, they overpaid him, and it made them in a pickle with Matt Ryan. Uh, sorry about the Devin Smith. But anyway, so yeah, uh, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of Devins and a lot of things going yeah, on yeah, at the yeah. linebacker position. Yeah. So anyway, I, I think I but I do think in general, uh, you know, overpaying that position is one of the worst sins in all of kind of up, upper level football management. And uh, and, uh, and I think we've seen after last year uh, the folly of it. I mean, Fred Warner wasn't terrible, but he was nowhere near elite. And it was the most predictable thing. In the history of the world, yeah, yeah, there, there was a funny thing with the with the discourse of Warner because uh, I go, well, yeah, you're. I mean, you had a pretty inflammable. You had a pretty hot. It was you came in pretty hot about the. Fr- I said they I think should it might be have been ashamed. Ab- I said they should. Oh, be should be ashamed. ashamed. That's. What- <laughs> I thought it was like an abomination or something. Yeah, so you said the 49ers should be ashamed for that contract. You're ashamed doing this whole shame uh, Game of Thrones thing on them. And then you got attacked after that, which meant that the beauty of of film analysis is you can just clip like four plays and then be like, boom, roasted Hermsmeyer. Look, he could still, he could still guard people that discounts your entire analysis. Despite the fact that Warder himself was saying that he was struggling. Oh my goodness. Even the GM said that he wasn't performing up to standard. And then Warner apologized in the middle of the season. I, yeah, it, it couldn't, it couldn't have gone any more predictably. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely blasphemous. You, you, you already caught hell for that, so it's good to let, let, let's lean, let's lean right, right back into that one. Okay, um, all right, this one, this is not too hot, but this is this is an idea that I've had, and it it goes on an older theory. So there was this this theory, probably not the most well named theory, back when I was doing some writing for Rotoviz, and at the time, the uh, the kingpin there. Uh, fantasy douche, great, great name, of course. There, so the fantasy douche, the main main man there at Rotoviz, he had a theory which we kind of built on in, in a few different ways, where he called it the YOLO QB theory, and his theory was there are only so many like traditional pocket passer types who can execute an offense at a high level, 
who can, you know, quote unquote, get a bucket as, as they like to say now about these guys who can under pressure or third down, make a play happen outside of structure, do something extraordinary. So guys who aren't just either an executor, like a robot executor or, uh, someone who just who, who fades in these sorts of moments that you need. So his theory was, well, let's gather a handful of running quarterbacks. We don't care as much about whether the fact they may get injured because we have other guys who could step in and kind of lean into that that running quarterback way. So this is not the same exact theory as that, but it's a little bit of a different theory where I believe every team in the NFL should have some sort of platooning going on at quarterback, specifically in high leverage, short yardage situations. Every team should potentially even carry a third quarterback on the roster. So not necessarily someone you want to be your all-time backup, but someone you can use in those situations to provide some sort of passing threat, but then also a running threat on on these downs because it was kind of brought to my attention earlier this year when Jacoby Brissett signed with the Browns that like Brissett, not great necessarily quarterback, but I think he was 20 of 21 converting on third and fourth and one in his career. Really excellent at doing something like that. So I feel like that should just be a bigger strategy because the, the incremental benefit you're going to get from that is going to be worth whatever money you have to pay, whatever that roster spot is worth. And the problem is I think teams are just – if it fails when they bring in this lesser running quarterback on a – key third and one fourth and one if it fails they're going to feel so bad about taking out their star quarterback that it's going to dissuade them from doing something that on average is better to do not only to mention you know you have the injury risk that you can take away like guys like Mahomes getting injured on a quarterback sneak where now they bring in a tight end Blake Bell who played uh, quarterback early in his career to where he has no like credible threat to throw the ball to come in and do sneaks and others like why not just have that be an established position someone extremely cheap that you can bring in to give you leverage, you know, maybe even on third and two or third and three and other places and really not get locked into needing to pass the ball where passing is actually a negative EV versus running in a lot of these situations. I think that's fair. I think my, my one pushback and and it sounds very football guy, but if this, if this was something that works and we've had examples of teams, try things like it, like with slash the Pittsburgh Steelers way back when uh, with uh, Corderell or Cordell, uh, uh, Stewart, I, I think we would have seen more success, right? Like I, I know Slash eventually became the all-time quarterback, but there was a year where he came in and he did just what you said. He could throw the ball, but he also was a threat to run. I just think, I don't know that there are, there are play callers and play designers who can wrap their head around it for whatever reason and make it effective. And, uh, you know, may, maybe that is a, a constraint that can be overcome and you just need the right guy in there who can build a system and can work around two quarterbacks, work, work a team together and so that they can be cohesive throughout a series, even when they have guys coming in and out. Um, I, I, I just wonder how much of that is an impediment to to, to implementing that, that scheme and that strategy, um, just because we haven't really seen it be effective in the NFL yet. Yeah, yeah, I think there's, there's some of that, right? Um, but... I, I would lean a little bit more on this like this concept of rather than coaches having risk aversion, sometimes they have like this regret aversion that they're really going against. So for me, 
I think what coaches think is, okay, I have X quarterback. Who I don't know how good of a quarterback it may be that we're going to say hits the bar on this sort of thing. I don't know, Kirk Cousins or someone like that. Even though Kirk Cousins maybe not that, maybe he's not high enough to really think about. Let's let's say you have Kirk Cousins in there, and it's this like critical fourth and one play, fourth and one yard and a half. And if you run the play with Cousins and you fail. You're like, okay, well, we failed in the play, you know, whereas you, you bring in this other guy, the fans will be like, what's going on? And you fail with this other guy, despite the fact that you're, you know, you're, you're flipping coins, basically, in a lot of situations here, like that flip where it comes up against you is going to feel so much worse. You're going to have to answer so many more questions about it. You're going to be like, why didn't we just do what we felt comfortable with? Because I think that comes into this weird thing that teams don't run the ball more in these circumstances, because it feels fatalistic when you run the ball and it doesn't work. Whereas if you drop back the pass or you roll it and pass, even when it doesn't work, it doesn't feel as fatalistic because you're like, well, I, I could have thrown it here. I could have gone there. It can be executed. Whereas if a guy runs the ball and just gets stuffed, it feels like that play had no chance. And then you're just going to regret it that much more. I think uh, you, you've hit on something that people talk about a lot and Mitchell Schwartz has before, the idea of how it feels when you are successful running. And I think it's the exact opposite of what you just said. You feel like yeah. no one can stop you, right? You're literally dominating the game of football in the way it was meant to be played, in the trenches, right? You know, you're, you're, you're physically imposing your will. And so, yeah, losing in that fashion instead of going YOLO and just trying to chuck it up there, I, I imagine you're correct. It does feel worse. Yeah, I mean, you could probably, like, use these guys to do other stuff, too, on the offense. I'm not saying it has to be, like, Taysom Hill. You don't have to pay Taysom Hill. Ridiculous amounts of money, right? To, to find another UDFA who's like 30 years old and and has those sort of skills. I just feel like those guys are out there too in a sort of way to bring in. And maybe you can use them in a different fashion. So that would be my thing. Bring them in. Use that roster spot. Go ahead and, and, and give it a shot sometimes. All right. Here's, here's my next thing. The NFL should abolish the salary cap. There's no evidence. Oh, all right here. There is no okay. evidence that the cap creates parity. You put a salary floor in as well to protect the – protect the guys on the fringe so that that it absolutely has to be a part of this as well but if you do these yeah. things you'll have destroyed the basis for much of current analytical thinking which is a huge positive if you want to own the nerds um you'll also take the roof off elite players who are trying to grab the bag which i think should be should be something we'd all applaud um some salary cap apologists are going to point to baseball right but they're wrong they're just wrong baseball which has no cap they do have a luxury tax but it's not the same there's no hard cap hasn't had a repeat champion in 21 years all right. Since 2010, 29 of 30 teams have made the playoffs. All right. Maybe they'll trot out soccer, you know, but ultimately comparisons to other sports, I think, are dumb. Um, we have a natural experiment in the NFL itself, and the salary cap was completely unable to do the main thing its proponents said it would do, and that was to prevent a dynasty. In fact, instead, what we got was the greatest dynasty in the history of the NFL up in New England. And so I think some... I don't understand, but some will still maintain that an unfair system makes for a fairer game. And I think that's nonsense up and down the line. Okay, well, hmm. fair. I mean, I think there's probably some, like, it, it probably helps in some ways, but it probably doesn't help as, as much ways as you're saying. I guess a couple different points here. The baseball example, I think is interesting. Then again, when you get to the playoffs in baseball, you're 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 flipping coins basically who's going to end up winning a lot of these different series so like repeat champions maybe not but you could have some dominance for the teams what i do think is interesting from an nfl perspective is that the revenues the teams bring in are much closer as a much 
lower like variation than there are than there is in in the major leagues and that there is in the NBA because they have local television contracts that go to the team. So if you're the Yankees, you have a huge, huge television contract. If you're the Warriors, you have a huge, huge television contract. If you're the NFL, everything is split evenly for, for these different contracts. The additional money that you make is through ticket sales. It's through merchandising. It's through other things. So there's less of a of a of a imbalance there. So the salary cap could be exploited a little bit less in that circumstance. But what my other suggestion would be, what about something like a soft cap like they have in the um in the NBA where you can go over the cap but then you're paying a penalty over the cap. I believe in the NBA there's a cap amount and then every dollar you spend over that cap amount you have to like contribute an extra dollar to some sort of I don't know NBA slush fund or something like that. Yeah, I think the baseball has something similar to luxury tax. I, I, I think that, that that's fine. I, I'd be open to that as well. But I mean, think of all the knock-on benefits. So like, here, here's, an, here's an example of why I'm excited about this idea of no cap. I mean, besides it just being inherently unfair, uh, because you're literally robbing Peter to pay Paul within a team environment. And that, that isn't good, right, for a team. So uh, I, I think one of the great things I would love to see is a team of all-stars on defense. So we know that defense is a weak link system. Well, what if there's no weak link? What 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 would that look like in the NFL against Patrick Mahomes? I would love to see that. We'll never see that with the cap. There's no way you're going to be able to field a team of all-stars and still put an offense that's respectable on the field in, in the current cap, uh, cap, cap league. So that would be something I think we would get to see. I think you would see uh, an all-star offensive line and maybe a resurgence of of tactical running that's actually plus EV. And I'm not I'm not saying that it would be absolutely in terms of absolute value of number of yards per play would be equal to passing, but there would be maybe a, a, a point where it'd be marginally beneficial to run again versus a pass. And, and, and I think that would be good for football. So I think there's, there's lots of reasons to think that uh, the, the salary cap would a not destroy the league and parity as we know it. Um, and, and because we have an example, an actual experiment from, from the league itself that shows that, look, we haven't really gotten that much worse at all. Um, with in terms of uh, or much better at all in terms of parity um, since we've uh, instituted the cap, um, it's fair and we'll have uh, opening opening for new strategies, which I think would be uh, tremendous for the game. Yeah, now I can also see probably uh, impetus for more owner turnover, which we have not seen nearly as much in the NFL as we have in other sports Great since. Point. You know, if you're Tepper or someone, you come in with $16 billion, you're going to grind out a little bit more on top of that cap as opposed to Mark Davis, whose dad, you know, bought the team whenever it was 70 years ago and now um, now has something worth a billion dollars, but no real uh, money out, outside of that adventure. OK, I like that. All right. So next here is that let's, let's get into Aaron Donald. So we can talk about Donald. We can talk about um, the contract a little bit here. So I'm going to violate one of the rules of the internet and uh, Twitter specifically, but we're podcasting. So I think it's okay here. And plus I think we're past the statute of limitations. And that, that rule is you never, never hold someone else's L. So if, if someone's taking a big L and getting, getting destroyed, don't come in there and be like, ah, you know, I think they might be reasonable. Like you don't, there's no point. Don't, don't, don't prostrate yourself out there and go and get beat up by the crowd also. So the L that I'm going to, I'm going to partially hold here is that I, I think I agree with Burke Brian Burke, ESPN, Seth Walder, our friends over there who said that Aaron Donald is not really a great run defender. 
Okay. And he, they got crushed for it. It was, it was pretty fun, honestly, that day to see things. I think PFF, I think we were subtweeting them by putting his, his grading on there and other stuff. Uh, Brandon Thorne, a trench expert, had one of my favorite tweets of all time, which was, the analytics community took a step back today, I'm afraid, which I like the I'm afraid at the end too. But um, so that was, that was good. I, I repurposed that many times after that. But so they, they had a study at ESPN where they looked at their run stop win rate and their run block win rate numbers using uh, tracking data. And they found out that Donald was not really winning according to their definition on here a lot. And I think there was just like this huge confusion between people talking past each other, which never really, you know, obviously happens a lot on there. But, you know, you do look at the numbers. The Rams don't really perform any better against the run when Donald's in the game versus when he's out of the game. They perform extremely better against the pass. But it's not that, like, Donald couldn't be a great run defender. It's just that the way he plays, shooting gaps, going up the field, it's going to be that much more beneficial to making big impact defensive plays against the run for stopping someone in the backfield. But then also leaving wide open holes that others are going to have to fill. So he's technically winning his gap, but then leaving a huge gap for someone else to have to fill in afterwards. And it kind of comes through in the numbers. Again, his EPA per play for the, for the Rams is, is worse when he's on the field than when he's off against the run. But again, like in a net sense with him also against the pass, it's a beneficial way of playing because he's using that, that same thing to shoot the gap and eventually go ahead and and sack the quarterback. So I just think that like people need to chill out and just to say that someone's overall impact can be huge, but at the same time, you're not going to say the Rams are a great run defense team because they have Aaron Donald and he makes these plays in the backfield sometimes. In general, I do agree with ESPN that he probably is a net negative, slight net negative to that side of the game while bringing a huge net positive against the pass. And I guess I guess I I, I have nothing negative to say about your analysis. I agree with all of it. I think it's, again, a big part of this is how you market your idea. And in this case, this was a hot take, right? This was a hot take and we're going to get some eyeballs on this idea. Um, Whereas I think what you, the way you've laid it out is that uh, it's more of this whole idea of Belichick in the Super Bowl with the Giants, you know, where you're going to allow the Bills to run on you because that's okay. We would rather have that outcome rather than lose the pass. Well, if if, if it's the case that Don, Donald has made the choice that he's going to sell out to try and do the, the most important thing a lineman can do, which is take out the quarterback or pressure him, um, and, and the expense, the cost to that is a little is a little more effective run game. I think any smart coach or team builder or teammate would say, you go do you, Donald. You, know, you do that thing. And and I think that that's a, a much more reasonable way to put it. Of course, any anyone saying something bad about Donald you know, it's probably going to get some some people coming at you. So maybe there's no way around it. Okay, well, do you have... Yeah, I mean, I think the thing was the ESPN piece was entitled Aaron Donald is like an average run defender or something like that. And the truth is, it's not like... It's not that he's actually an average run defender. It's that he plays in a way where his effect on running plays is about average versus other defensive tackles who don't play in a certain sort of way and so on and forth. But what do you think about this Donald contract? Cause this is, this is like pretty wild that they basically tore up the three years remaining on his contract and then gave him a new, gave him 40 million more dollars over the next, over the next three years. So I guess Donald's leverage was he might retire, but 
I don't think we've seen anything anywhere close to like this in the past. Do you have a you have a take on that? I was when I saw the first analysis come out yesterday, and I haven't done any more today. If there's new details that's come out, uh, but Jason at Over the Cap did a, a brief analysis after Florio reported the details um, as kind of shaky and as flimsy as they are. Whenever Florio is reporting, they the 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 number I saw was like 16.9% of the cap in 2023. And that was eyebrow raising. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes we get caught up in raw numbers. And I, I really think you have to take projected cap into the future and use a percentage of it to try and understand what the actual effect on the team build will be. And next year, spending 17% on Donald is going to be interesting for, for LA. Um, I, I, I haven't taken a look at all the guys that are coming up next year and what that's going to mean for signings. It certainly is going to have an impact or has had an impact on the negotiations with Odell Beckham. I mean, I've seen news reports that perhaps he might be reunited in Cleveland, um, but uh, that would be super interesting and unexpected. But I think that, uh, you know, this decision with Donald, I think is going to impact those kind of decisions. There's going to be a trickle down throughout the next two years. And while he's worth it, while, I think he deserves every dollar, um, and it is unprecedented. Uh, it is one of those things where I – look, I'll put it this way. I'm glad Les Need is in the league. I'm glad there are guys doing it differently. I might not do it that way, or maybe I would if I was in issues. I don't know. But, like, I love that there's guys that are going stars and scrubs, that are trading all their picks, going in now, going big, paying their stars. I think it, I think it makes for a much more interesting league, and I like seeing lots of strategies deployed. You want me to roll into my my Cleveland Browns take? Well, one 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 other thing I'll say about this real quickly. I just I guess I just haven't. I think it's weird when you say a player who has been underpaid, so they deserve more money. And I guess like I could get that, but I don't know. I just have trouble seeing like. Imagine if Bill Belichick was in the, in this circumstance, where everyone says is the greatest of all time, and Aaron Donald's like, yeah, yeah, you know, coach, uh, I think I'm gonna retire. You know, but maybe if you sweeten the pot here and you just give me all this money, then I'll come back. He'll just be like, you know, have a good retirement, AD. You know, like he's not going to, he would not, no way that he would do this. He's like so unsentimental about those sort of things. So I feel like we, we kind of value those two things simultaneously. We value like players should be rewarded for it. And we also value the cutthroatedness of someone like, like Belichick sometimes when it comes to those uh, pieces, even, even when it comes to Tom Brady when, uh, on those teams. I mean, Bill Walsh was cutthroat when there was no cap. Uh, yeah. Strange. <laughs> just a strange thing. I mean, he put himself through hell, literally. Like, he, he, he felt so bad about and conflicted emotionally about some of the things, decisions he made as coach GM that uh, he, he made himself sick. So I, I think I think that there's a, a better line that you can draw. And, again, another reason why no salary cap. So you could pay those players and still not cripple your team. You just, you know, maybe you'll force – the, the the Mark Davis is out of the league, like you mentioned. That yeah, one. yeah. Ownership ownership is not going to be it's not going to be too hot about it. But yeah, no. no we'll, okay, let, let's go. Let's go. What right. else? What else we got? Heat. Let's bring the heat. The Cleveland Browns. Are oh, fake, here we go. Our fake shark. They paid. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Let's let's bring it. Let's bring it. They paid top of market for two guards and a running back. They drafted an off ball linebacker in the second round, and they handled their players poorly, and they refused to move on when relationships go south. So. Odell Beckham, who might come back, which is kind of undercutting my claim here. But anyway, and Baker Mayfield. They sit around and they wait until their hand is forced and their options have been narrowed by circumstances ostensibly beyond their control instead of being proactive. And then 
when they finally do go all in on a player, as I mentioned on my tweet thread yesterday, it's a big bet um, on on Deshaun Watson, and they pay ton of $250 million of guaranteed money to a dude with, what, 24 sexual assault allegations hanging around his neck? Um, if there was ever a moment to fight back against bad organizational thinking that sharp people would do, that was it. But instead, they, they got comfortable with it. Um, I think they're the Houston Astros of the NFL, they're the McKinsey's of the football world, and they really haven't done anything innovative or new to warrant the adoration they get from a lot of analysts. All right. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, I still, well, I don't know if I agree, but I'm, I'm in the ballpark on some of this. I mean, what I will say, and maybe we can talk about Deshaun Watson now for a second. Uh, Monday was not a good day for the Browns, for Deshaun Watson and for others. And it's not just because this somehow makes the, like legality of what he did or his guilt or innocence, how you would view it that differently. Cause quite honestly, like what's the, we're talking about going from 23 to 24 civil cases. There've already been, I think there were three different criminal cases that were not civil cases. There was a woman who was interviewed by Jenny Frentis at, at sports illustrated, who also is not part of either procedure. So we're already talking about prior to this allegation on Monday, we're already talking about 27, 28, you know, different women. So adding one to the, to the, to the mix, other than you know, giving people a, a reason to comment on it is not a big deal. But I think an underplayed thing as part of this is that there was no comment from uh, the attorneys and from Watson because they didn't know this woman existed. That meaning the attorneys did not know that she was out there as a potential uh, um, accuser in this thing. Whereas they did know this twenty third woman from 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 last week. So I don't know, man. This is like all those guarantees, all those everything else, it also is getting to the point of like how comfortable, quote unquote comfortable can you be when it sounds like you, you draw a, you know, hundred mile radius around the city of Houston and just randomly call uh, anyone who works in the massage business. And there's like a, a coin flip chance that they've been assaulted by Deshaun Watson. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I've been pretty vocal about my displeasure with the fact that Deshaun Watson got another opportunity in this league without I mean, so there's this idea out there that you play hard, uh, talking about front offices, you play hard until the commissioner steps in, right? Like, and then he's the final arbiter of what, of, of morality in the league, right? And you, you're just a, you're just a person here trying to compete with 32 other front offices. And I just think that's a bad way of thinking about this. And I think you pointed out yesterday, there were a lot of teams involved. Um, and I think a lot of teams were offering pretty crappy deals. To Houston for him. I think they were really trying to take advantage of the situation and saying, look, if we can get him on the cheap, we'll accept all of the baggage that comes along with this, including the the, 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 the very sizable possibility he might play, might not play for two years in a row, right? Two full years in a row. Um, and perhaps more. I mean, there is an, there is a chance for the NFL to actually do something strong here and, 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 and suspend him for a year and a half, two years. I don't think it'll happen, but it's possible. So there, there is an outside shot of three straight years of no playing for Deshaun Watson. And that's wild. Um, and so I think there was a reason why he was considered a distressed asset and that teams were poking and, and showing interest. But what Cleveland did was, I mean, they, they paid up, man. They paid up in terms of draft capital and in money. And, and they structured the deal in a way that protects him if he is suspended for an entire year this year. I think only $1 million hit. 
if uh, if he gets suspended for the entire season in terms of uh, money lost for for uh, for Deshaun Watson. So I think the one good thing here for Cleveland, if they are having second thoughts, is if it's correct that the 24th woman is actually an unknown, right? Is not someone who was disclosed to them by Watson or his attorneys. I believe they have an out in the contract. Um, and uh, so for the if, guarantees, yeah. For the guarantees. So if they choose to exercise that because they've just had enough, um, that would be an out for them. But again, it's just, it's just I mean, it, it dovetails with my take. They just, circumstances. What here's the thing about, and I don't, I'm not saying there aren't like really smart people in Cleveland. What I am saying is you could have lots of very smart people and have a poorly run organization still because it's difficult because it's really, really hard to create an effective, efficient leadership structure that makes good decisions as a unit. Um, and, and I think there's probably a lot of internal bickering about some of this stuff. And there's probably a lot of internal uh, people upset about some of the decisions that were made. But in this case, what they do when they do rally, when they all decide, OK, we have this narrow set of choices we have to make. I think they're the best in the league at finding the least worst path through the forest. I think they really rally. And when they have like organizational clarity, they can make really strong, sharp decisions. Um, like even with Odell Beckham, I think they found a way to uh, save some money uh, when they cut him by, by, by messing around with some factors. And I thought I, I forget all the details of it, but I remember being impressed when I read about how they handled that situation at the end. Right. When their when their hand was forced. And so now that now their their hand might be forced again with Watson, and they may have an out, and and, and good for them, I guess. Uh, you know, I, I all that just to say, I I I think they're fake sharp as an organization, but within the organization itself, there's lots of very smart people. Yeah, I mean, they have this whole thing like they have a, they have a lot of people working there. Uh, hired some big data bowl guys. They have guys who I've known like Andrew Healy, who's been there for a long time. I talked to David Giuliani on this podcast. He's there. Uh, Kevin Mears used to be there, who I've talked to here and is now doing work in Zealous Analytics. So they have a lot of like good people that have been there. They have Paul D. Podesta, right? So they have the, the Moneyball, the Moneyball nerd working for them. So I do think there probably is like on a, on a, on a decision by decision basis, I've probably been even too biased to continue to cut them slack over and over again. The Watson thing changed my thinking a bit. I even mentioned with this uh, Njoku contract is that now we're starting to get an accumulation of things where maybe on its face, none of the things minus Watson are so egregious that you can say this is awful, like in and of itself by, by itself. But then if you're not giving them this benefit of the doubt on all of these different things and you start looking at them without just in a pure clarity and then you start accumulating all of these different things, it's just not a way to get a sustained advantage. If, you, if you're not taking all of these potentials to make a little bit of a harder decision, let someone go, turn it in a different direction and then try to squeeze that value out somewhere else. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good way to put it. The edges are small in the NFL. And they're squandering a lot of them with their choices. And, uh, and so you can't accumulate edges that way. You, you I mean, when, when you're throwing them away, I mean, you know, you're, you're not going to, at the end of the day, look back and go, oh, look at all that surplus value we generated. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, whatever. They're, they're showing some of the pressure, I think, for timeline and for other things as far as getting things done after having a playoff appearance a couple of years ago wanting to to push forward. Okay, so this is my last one here. It's not super hot, but this is an idea that I've had that kind of got validated even more this season is that I believe players, especially skill position players, but players generally, if they have a reputation for being a top guy, for being an athletic guy, don't do any athletic testing. As part of the NFL draft, just skip the whole process. I know the NFL is not going to like to hear this. The draft is big, big money maker for them. But I think there's almost no evidence for top picks that there is a bias against players who skip the testing or are too injured to to test. And I put that in quotes because guys like Drake London this year, uh, he was recovered well enough to do drills at his pro day, but then he just never did the athletic testing. So, again, London was the first wide receiver taken this year at number eight. Uh, Jamison Williams coming off of an ACL went at 12 and we kind of just I think there's more of a bias in people's thinking to assume the best when we have no information rather than assume the worst. So like we're assuming that Jamison Williams would have run a 428 but we don't even know because we have nothing to go on because of the ACL and other things. And I look back at guys who hadn't tested in the past who are winning the first couple of rounds in the NFL draft and none of these guys I would say were undervalued even with the perspective at the time of who we thought they were and definitely not in in hindsight i mean Corey davis had a broken foot did not test in the nfl draft he went fifth overall in the in the nfl draft where he was kind of a stretch anyway so he went fifth jalen waddle did not test last year he went sixth uh Devontae smith did not test last year he went 10th uh, marquise brown went 25th overall the first wide receiver taken in a draft with a lot of great receivers in it K.J. Hamler went 46 in the second round, and Van Jefferson went 57. So those are the guys that were these guys who a lot of them went earlier than you would have thought maybe, or at the very least, they did not go any later than you would have thought based upon the testing. So I say for these guys, is like, just don't test. If people are like, we believe you're an athletic guy like a Traylon Burks this year, like even a DK Metcalf before, even though DK Metcalf ran a big 40, there were questions about his his agility times. It's like, just don't test. Let people's minds work and and think of the rosiest outcomes for who you are and who you may be athletically based upon what they what you put on tape. So that maybe it's going to kind of kill the combine a little bit, but that would be my advice to the agents and to these players is just stop testing. So is this just a wide receiver tape? I think it goes for guys beyond wide receiver. I mean, Najee Harris is another guy who didn't test last year who ended up being drafted pretty high. I think it's just like if you're already established as being a pretty good player, and my my alternative take is once you're established as being a good player, stop playing in college (laughs) also until you're – until like we saw this with a lot of guys with the COVID season. Like not only did it not affect their draft status, but it was like an excellent class, all these guys at the top of the class who didn't end up playing. Just start training for the NFL draft, right, or training for the NFL right then. So that would be my two things is once you've established yourself, there's going to be a team at least or a few teams who will talk themselves into you, and the lack of information does not hurt you as much as the potential for new negative information. You know what I mean? That, that That's what really can hurt you here and not the lack of information. That's that's interesting and that's fair. I, I think there is a missed opportunity for the Rubes to double count though. I mean, so I mean that, that happens so often that I, I would almost, I, I, I think you make more money betting on teams to be dumb than you do on betting on them to be smart. But what, what would you say to Lamar Jackson? Was, was he helped or hurt by not testing? I don't know. I don't think it mattered, but 
Yeah, he, he obviously went at a lower range than what you would have expected, but it sounds like the concerns were a little bit deeper than that. And again, I don't think, like if he would have run a 4-3-40, I don't know. Would that have, like, was that a concern for anyone? So I don't think he was affected by that, but you're right. That is a guy who went lower than you would think when he didn't test, but then again, it's a, with a quarterback, it might be a little bit of a different discussion. Yeah, and again, like, I think it's a bit of a different discussion because people or teams, at least uh, back back in 2018, were undervaluing mobile quarterbacks, right? I think that that has kind of gone the way of the dodo a little bit. Um, you know, even Josh Allen is viewed as a mobile quarterback, and he is, and he is. But that was one of the big reasons why Buffalo liked him. So I think I think even uh, even pocket passers uh, who have mobility are getting properly valued now. All right. Yeah. All right. Speaking speaking of passers. At the most important position in football, nobody knows anything. Evaluators are lost. Analytics people... The nihilist. We're going straight nihilist now. Analytics people are lost. I mean, a person can make an entire career out of taking credit for one good QB pick. But in any given building in the NFL, all opinions on every QB are held, Right. There's someone on every team that loved a bust like Trubisky, and that some, and then there's someone who loved Mahomes and wanted their team to take him. And the problem is that the guy that was right on Mahomes also thought Josh Rosen was a safe, high ceiling pick. So picking QBs isn't completely random. So I'm not a complete nihilist, but there's no edge beyond creating general tiers and then firing as many shots as you can and refusing to stop until you get a hit. That's my. So that's my you're pick. saying. You're saying, by the way, let me let me let me take that last point here. So you're saying you should be firing more at, at these guys, or or what 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 what's what's what is the the remedy? What's the remedy to this fact that we know nothing? Well, we do. We I did say we know. Okay, we, I said I did say we know nothing, but we know nothing about once we have tiers, how to rank okay. within a tier. Um. So okay. so for instance, if we if we might have an agreement that there's five or six good QBs in a particular class. Rank ordering them within that tier is not something that we're capable of doing. Evaluators or analytics people. And so once you get to that point, the only, given these facts, and, and I, I think they're undisputed, I mean, people within the league, as I mentioned, may want to take credit for certain picks because that's how you advance your career. But in terms of actually, it's kind of like, uh, you know, hedge fund managers, they just, there's, there's no evidence that over the long term they're any better than market so all you do is the only given that the only the only sensible alternative is to just fire more bullets um at those types of guys and so maybe your tier is a little bigger than the next team so that gives you a slight edge that's perhaps one way but in general you just need more picks and unfortunately um that's likely going to mean trading up um like for instance this year we didn't have a a large tier of, uh, of top elite quarterback talent the year previous that might have been a good year to trade future picks to move up into that round into the first round to have two first round picks and take a couple shots at quarterback, something no team would ever do as currently constituted, because that is just an app. You don't, you don't put competition on the field, two rookie quarterbacks. That's crazy. No one would ever do that. Um, except the Dallas Cowboys when they took Troy Eggman and Steve Walsh, but here we are. Yeah. You know, the quarterback thing. Okay. So I have a couple of, of thoughts about, how teams approach quarterback. What you mentioned about with Lamar Jackson, I thought was interesting because 
like I don't know if he fell to 32 because there was that low of an evaluation with him or because there are only X number of teams who are really committed to spending capital on a quarterback every season. And then he was in a year where, you know, the, the, you know, the, the Browns got Baker Mayfield. So that seat's gone. Then the Jets get Sam Darnold. So then that seat's gone. Then the, uh, and Josh Allen goes to the bills and that goes away. And then Josh Rosen goes to the Cardinals and that goes away. And then it becomes a situation where they're just teams that are maybe ambivalent about whether they want to go and a guy can fall further and further. And I felt like that was a little bit of the case this year with these guys falling to the third round is that, I mean, I, I described it as being almost like musical chairs. And what they didn't realize is that there was only really one chair of a team that said, I'm willing to spend first round capital on a quarterback. And that was the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the Pittsburgh Steelers didn't know they were the only team there. If they knew they were the only team there, maybe they wouldn't have even had their chair in there in the first place. You know, someone sat down there and then these quarterbacks are just walking around and no one was willing to put their chair in until later on. So, like, how confident are you in a year like this that these quarterbacks were, like, third-round talents versus being maybe, like, a second- or first-round talent? Or is it just now, like, the NFL is just more full, full of quarterbacks? I mean, Garoppolo and Baker Mayfield, you can't even find a spot for them when these are guys that were considered to be, like, league-average-type quarterbacks. Oh, I think it was ridiculous that teams were continuing to pass on quarterbacks just because the value, if you do hit, is much greater than any other pick you could make in the second round. Um, and, and they just weren't doing it. And I think that that's just a, it's a failure of imagination by all these front offices. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, no, I, I think that I think this 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 class probably could end up being better than our current perception um, just for that simple fact alone. But um, I also think, though, that we can reliably say there are good draft classes and bad ones in general, you know, in the grand sweep of things. And, uh, and and there's ways to plan around that, I think. Okay, well, let me again, let me throw out this. Uh, I want to go on this a little bit further so we can get, to get, we can get some hot, hot hotness here um, from the takes. I'm going to give you a team, and you're going to tell me, forget about this particular draft class, but would you already be drafting a quarterback in the, I don't what do you think about second round quarterbacks? Is that even, is it, or would you just go straight for first round? I think the fifth round option uh, or fifth year option has lost a little bit of its value, but I still yeah. would rather I still would rather take a guy in the position. Okay, well, let's just say an early quarterback who should be firing at, at a guy right now. Um, how about the Eagles and Jalen Hurts? How 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 should they feel in a year where they had a couple of first round picks? If there was a guy to to, to look at, which it seems like it was just off the board for them, should it have been? They should have drafted quarterback. Yes. Okay. So they, they should draft quarterback. How about um, the Chicago Bears? Yeah. Yes. Okay. How about uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars? Yes. Okay. All right. I like this. Um, okay. So I, I, I can pretty much I, – I don't know if there's even a point in continuing this exercise. Well, I'm just going to say yes to everybody. Well, I mean, look, so there's probably four or five guys. Well, where's the threshold? Yeah, that would be the question. Okay, that would be the question. That's a good one. So, like, Dak Prescott, you're, you're good with him, I assume, or no? I would or draft. Should you, or should, I would draft. Should the, should the Cowboys be drafting one? Yeah, they should be drafting. Ooh. I, 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 <laughs> okay. I, think, I, think, I think when you have a younger quarterback who's either still on his rookie deal and you're absolutely convinced he's going to get a second with, with your team, a second uh, contract with your team, or, or a guy like uh, Josh Allen who's still young and has just signed a big one. But I think you're in a window and you want to hit the other parts of your team. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're out. Okay, okay. You, I, I, well, you I got to keep going. I got to keep going then. Yep. Um, 
I wouldn't necessarily agree with this, but he's he's his he he's elevated a bit here. Matthew Stafford, so the the Rams. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so but I mean, the, what are the what, where are the Rams going to draft a quarterback? That, that never happens. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's that's kind of true. All right, uh, Kyler Mur- Arizona Cardinals. Yeah. Okay, uh, Baltimore Ravens. Lamar Jackson. Absolutely. <laughs> Okay. It's okay. Maybe this would be a, this would be a quicker exercise if I just went the other direction and said like, who would you? If what teams would you not draft a quarterback? So the Chiefs would you draft a quarterback? No, I would. I, I, I would probably give give them a pass if they didn't. Know. You're like, eh, fifty fifty. <laughs> um, Chargers, Chargers. No, you don't need to draft a quarterback. Okay, okay. Buffalo Bills. No, you don't. Okay, so we got three at least. Um, who would be next? Uh, Cincinnati Bengals? Probably not, but I would not okay. blame them if they did. <laughs> okay, so we have those. I don't know if I'm confident in anyone else here because I'd assume just for age reasons, you would be okay with the Packers or the yeah. the Bucks drafting quarterbacks, oh, right? Absolutely. Okay. So, okay. So we have four. Is there anyone else? I mean, Russell Wilson for the Denver Broncos, I guess after you traded for him, it'd be kind of weird, but. Well, but see, that, that's one where I, I, I might not be so upset simply because they're really leaning into this whole notion of we're going to get the stable uh, uh, veteran QB, build a great team around him and shoot our shot for a year or two. So, right. You know, if they're willing to go three or four years, in the wilderness being mediocre or less after Russ is gone or even with Russ in his dotage, fine. It's fine to pass on it and just try and win now. Okay. Um, well, what if, Desh- okay, let's say Deshaun Watson, I'm trying to think of anyone else. Like if, if, if this, this, this shit never happened, right. This, sure. um, if, 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 if all the sexual assault accusations didn't happen, he was like coming into the 2021 season, not knowing all this stuff. Would he have qualified that, that type of level talent? Cause I can't really think of anyone else. Here's the thing about the Browns is like on paper they have a pretty stacked roster, right? And no, I agree. I feel like they're under kind of being undersold as a as a Super Bowl team this year. I mean, if he's going to play, if they had game, Watson, yeah. if Watson was playing, given the roster that they have, uh, I would forgive them for not drafting a quarterback. But uh, their current situation. Yeah, yeah, okay, and the, and the only other guy, I guess, I mean, Trey Lance, I guess you you still, we, we he's a total unknown. Yeah, you draft. Okay, it was after after it's gonna be a little bit difficult after giving away three for or a couple of extra first round picks to go get him. But I like, okay, you know, I'm not I'm not against this quite honestly because if you think about it, like your random second round pick, I mean, these guys don't end up doing anything all the time, right? So, yeah, I just feel like there's a definite. It, there, this is always this has been my take, which I probably mentioned multiple times on here. Is there there's this feeling there's a bias towards quarterbacks in the NFL draft that they're being taken too early? And I think if anything, it's the opposite because you draft a quarterback even at the end of the first round. Like think about someone like Paxton Lynch, right? They got drafted for the Broncos. So what? You you blew a pick in the twenties. Like who gives a shit, right? But yet it's like Paxton Lynch, Paxton Lynch. The the Broncos stink. All this uh, drafting quarterbacks. All this stuff ends up happening. Like if anything, that gets weighed down an anchor around GM's necks. An unsuccessful mid first round pick where you can just write off a position player who ends up busting just as hard. It's interesting. It's, again, back to the Broncos with uh, Drew Locke, right? I think the only reason why they got hung with Drew Locke is because they didn't just keep firing. Like if you just, yeah, if you, it kind of you inure people to it if you just keep doing the thing, right? And and also yeah. if you don't 
build up expectations the next year that, oh, maybe this is the year the lock turns the corner when I think in camp they had a pretty good idea that first rookie season that mm, this might not be our guy. And, and, and so you just you just keep firing. And I think that uh, I think that's the way to go. Yes, I agree. This is this is great, Josh. Keep firing. Keep firing them takes on those Twitter streets. Also, uh, follow Josh on Twitter at Frisco Josh. Josh, you got anything in the hopper for this offseason or coming up next year you want to preview for us? Sure, yeah. Working hard on actually uh, creating and updating uh, approximate value in a way that I think reflects uh, the actual value that teams place based on contracts uh, on each position. And so with that, you can do cool things like uh, like, uh, like calculate surplus value using open source methods. So I think that'll be something uh, we'll roll out this year. And I think it'll be useful for me, everyone. It won't be as good as what people are doing uh, inside uh, the best teams or what you're doing at PFF, but it'll be something everyone can put their hands around. And I think it'll be good. No, no, I mean, that'd be great. I mean, you mentioned approximate value has kind of been around for the longest time where approximate was, was a good word because there was a lot of approximation going on when it comes to position players. I mean, for non-skill level players and others where you had to just kind of splice up an overall pie of value for a team with the best estimations and not necessarily derive like exact values or even any, any better than an approximate value for a lot of different players. So yeah, that can kind of become like the new standard for the outside, a little bit less opaque. I mean, it was explicit how they were calculating it. So that that's probably helpful vis-a-vis something like our war calculation. But yeah, anything that gives people a measure to even start doing this type of real analysis tethered to wins, tethered to value is, is very important. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, if you actually look at what he was doing, um, with approximate value, he was really just taking uh, EPA per drive and dipping it up. Um, and I think that's a, that's a fine way to do things. Um, you know, it wasn't as granular because he didn't have play level data. Um, but, you know, when you introduce snaps and snap share, I mean, you can you can really start getting at things in, in, in a pretty reasonable way. Not perfect by any means, but uh, definitely, uh, I think, will be a step forward. All right. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. We'll also maybe maybe I'll, I'll bug you to come back on here again to explain it to us when it's the case. Otherwise, go ahead. Follow Josh on Twitter. Uh, and I appreciate everyone tuning in here. If you have your own blasphemous takes you want to post on the YouTube video here or go ahead and you can shoot me a note on Twitter or Kevin.Cole at PFF.com. I will read them out on the next podcast. Otherwise, I'll be talking to everyone next week. Thanks so much. And I'll talk to you then. Oh, 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 oh,